Hello. This is the Transformation of European Politics series. My name is Tiger Bushadi, and I am a political scientist at the University of Zurich. In this podcast series, I talk to other political scientists about a publication of theirs that can help us better understand the transformation of European politics in the past 20 years. We link these academic works to broader debates within political science, but also discuss how they relate to current political developments. In this episode, I talked to Catherine de Vries, who is professor of political science at Bocconi University. Our conversation will focus on her forthcoming book that's titled Political Entrepreneurs, The Rise of Challenger Parties in Europe, and it's co-authored with Sarah Hobart. The book will come out in June, but you can already pre-order the book with Princeton University Press. I will post a link in the episode description. In the book, Catherine de Vries and Sarah Hobart analyze how challenger parties use different strategies to change existing patterns of political competition. Successful challenger parties work as issue entrepreneurs. That means they politicize new issues that drive wedges through existing political coalitions. Think of the radical right and the issue of immigration. But challenger parties do not only politicize new issues. They equally make use of anti-establishment rhetoric in order to mobilize voters. And it is that combination that makes them successful. While much political science literature has focused on challenger parties such as Green or Radical Right parties, the book also points to the resilience and continuing market dominance of mainstream parties. In the remainder of the episode, Catherine and I talk more generally about how parties can influence structures of political conflict. For more information about Catherine and her research, you can follow her on Twitter under Catherine de Vries or visit her website catherinedefries.eu. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, Catherine. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tarek. Good to be here. Today, what we want to talk about is your forthcoming book with Sarah Hobald. And in the book, you analyze the fate, the electoral fate, but also the, I would say, disruptive power of what you call challenger parties or political entrepreneurs. Before we go into detail with the book, I wanted to ask, what was the motivation behind it? How did you get to writing it? So I, I will give you kind of a, a sociology of, uh, of kind of academia and how that works answer and then kind of a content-based answer. So one is uh, maybe it would just in, be interesting also for students how, uh, how kind of academics start working together. So Sarah Hobolt, who is Danish by origin, went to the UK. I'm Dutch by origin, went to the UK, but we were doing kind of PhDs at the same time. And we had this part of our PhDs, which was about how... Uh, public opinion can be shaped by political parties rather than that public opinion reacts to, to the stance of political parties. And we didn't really know what to do with that. And we met at a conference in Bologna, actually, really long time ago, which we say in the preface also. And then we kept thinking about that. And then at a certain point, we had written a couple of, of pieces, academic pieces about that. And then, you know, we'll talk about the content in a minute. We realized that maybe we were asking the wrong question. And then when we were kind of reframing the question, so we were focusing very much about what challenger parties can do rather than how dominant parties, so the parties that we really think that dominate the party systems, uh, react. So we really kind of shifted. But it really came from two people meeting each other, liking each other, having parts of their dissertations that weren't published, and then working uh, together to do that. So it's basically kind of 16 years going, you know, but then the, the, actual, the actual book uh, idea was a was a was a was a you know couple of years basically that we started working on that. 
And then the, the core concept really is this idea of a challenger party. What is a challenger party? What makes a challenger party a challenger party? So what we do in the book is basically we define, I mean, to be, to be fair, I think it's both about challenger parties and dominant parties, but we can talk about that. But uh, so challenger parties are those, so the way we define them uh, is challenger parties are those parties that are not in government. So they're not in control of delivering the product, if you will, for voters. So parties compete in an election for different policy proposals. However, they can only really implement those policy proposals when they're in government. And uh, we then define dominant parties as those parties that are in government and challenger parties as those who are not in government. We do that both in this kind of dichotomous way, so being in government or not at that particular moment in time when we have data, but we also look at the share of which you've been in government. So it could be that, uh, you know, let's say you have one, the, let's take an example, maybe from Germany, that you have the FDP, so the Liberal Party, uh, that has been in government less long over the post-war period than the CDU, so than the Christian Democrats. So we also try to take that into account. So the, the length with which you uh, have been uh, in government. But challenger parties, really the definition is you haven't been part of a government coalition. Mm -hmm. And why does being in government matter? So why are parties different to have this government experience from those who have not? So there's a couple, of, <clears throat> a couple of reasons for that. So first is, as I already mentioned before, that basically you can only really deliver on the project, uh, on the on the project, on the on the, on the on the product. So the policy proposals that you that you outline while being in government. So in that way, it's really you know voters are not just voting for policy proposals; they also want to have uh, that policy being implemented. So secondly, is that when you enter government. Uh, it really changes you, if you will. So you have to negotiate uh, with other parties. Usually in most European uh, uh, countries, there, there are government coalitions, the UK being a, a notable exception. Um, and that really means that you have to kind of, you know, wheel and deal with other parties. And also you need to then do the trade-offs, right? So you have, you're not only want to implement a lot of po policies, but you also want to, for example, make sure that you fit the EU criteria about how much you can spend a year, right? So, so, so you really have to make those trade-offs. So those parties become managers, if you will, right? So they, they, they really have to kind of execute and that execution really changes the way parties can credibly, um, 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 credibly mobilize on a policy record, right? So it's more credible when you've been in government versus when you're not. But on the other hand, it makes it also very difficult to promise things to voters that you know you will have to backtrack on later on. So we really think that it changes your the way you interact with voters at an election time, something that we're particularly interested in in this book. Mm -hmm. So you've already mentioned the word product, or you used, already used it a bit in your explanation. And this is, of course, a a main part of the book and how you explain really the competition between these dominant parties and the challenger parties is using an economic analogy. And can you maybe explain me a little more about that to me? Yeah. So I, I, I will give a little bit maybe also of an, of an overview. So, so you, you, I think there's also an other podcast that you're doing that are very much about the structural conditions of, of parties. So the idea that parties are representing cleavages, so big social divisions, class, religion, etc. That was the very traditional way 
Lipset Rockan come to mind that we were basically explaining party competition in Europe. It's two Europeans uh, 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 that have that have that have really made this kind of famous. So think about someone like uh, like Rockan later on, also Hans Peter Krisi. Um, however, in the U.S., you had a quite different way of looking at party competition that already started with someone like Downs. So he really thought about you know you have these kind of models from economics that are about ice cream vendors and where you have to stand on the beach in order to maximize your your profit or the number of ice creams that you're selling at a particular price. And that was kind of a Downsian model, has been another model uh, that has been very influential. And actually where we, where we, uh, where our book sits, it sits more on the kind of Downsian type of, uh, type of approach. But what we kind of add to it is to say, well, okay, politics can be a market. So you have producers, parties, you have consumers, uh, voters that are buying a product, which are these policy proposals and the execution of those policy proposals in government. However, what we're criticizing Downs for is basically that Downs had really modeled from a free market so that, you know, you, there were, he didn't really think about barriers to that market. And anyone who understands politics, you, either you're kind of from the lips at Rockanian school or from another type of school, understands that there's crucial barriers to entry. So one would be the electoral system, so that it is more difficult, for example, to be a political, uh, a new political party or political entrepreneur in the British system, where it makes really, uh, it's really difficult to win a seat because it's first past the post, so the majority party wins, so it favors existing big parties. In the Netherlands, a proportional representation system, it's much easier because, you know, you only need to get, basically the percentage of votes you get are the percentage of seats you get in, uh, in Parliament, just to, to kind of say it simply. So what we are trying to model with this market analogy is to, is to not model from a free market or a, a market with no barriers, which would be a more Downsian idea, but from a more complicated market, which is called an oligopoly. So you have a couple of, of players that are quite dominant on that market, but then entrepreneurs are trying to enter that market by providing a better product or a cheaper product or a more, a more advantageous product. And that's, the, and that's basically where the analogy uh, uh, comes from. And then we take basically the insights from another part of economics, which is called industrial organization, which really tries to understand how innovation or lack of innovation happens on a market that is not free for all. So that there are a couple of dominant players that can protect their dominance on the market and entrepreneurs, you know, it, it's, it's more difficult for entrepreneurs to break through. And that's the kind of logic or analogy that we use in this book. Mm -hmm. You already mentioned it a, a bit, but I want to ask again, what is the product then exactly in this type of market situation? So, so we basically say, so I've talked very much about these policy proposals and I talked a little bit about being in government and how that changes it. So actually we think that the product has two dimensions to it. So one is this policy uh, um, uh, uh, element. So that is basically that you have these policy proposals that you're that you putting forward. Another part is also of the product is that you provide an insight as to how well you could manage you know, delivering that product. So that's often what political scientists call competence, right? So that has to do with the extent to which you can deliver. So it's both, both if you will, the product proposals as well as the personnel. But that's not very different in a, in a kind of firm way, right? Because the CEO or so on, you know, there, there can be huge 
market reactions to a change in a CEO, for example, or a change in a company strategy, right? So we, we t- kind of take that similar analogy that it's, that it's about the policies and also about the, the kind of backing in terms of personnel and terms of competence that you're providing as a political party. And then in, in this oligopolistic market, what are the main advantages that the established players have if we try to uh, then transfer this to the world of politics again? Exactly. So, so the way we then kind of think about in this oligopolistic market how um, dominant parties, so those that are in government versus challenger parties, those that have not had governing experience, how they compete is, is that dominant parties try to uh, make sure that these challenger parties don't gain any traction on the market. So what they're trying to do is they basically try to block market access for new, for new players. And the way they do that is by highlighting their competence. So, of course, they've been in government. The other side has not been, right? So they're really trying to outline, well, not only we might, you know, have certain types of policies that you don't 100% like or et cetera, et cetera, but we can actually deliver on that where the other side can't. So that is actually also, again, an analogy to the market. That was the way that Ford, for example, criticized someone like Elon Musk when they're on Twitter, uh, when there were not enough Teslas coming out, right? Teslas had an issue of, of, of producing enough and, uh, and had issues on the production line. So that would be the kind of similar type of, uh, of competition that a dominant party on the, on the political market would do. So that has to do with the kind of competence advantage, competence mobilization that dominant parties do. So a second thing what they do is they, they, they try to avoid that certain issues become part and partial of political competition that are not beneficial to them. So they try to really make, make political competition um, feature on the issues that, that they have an advantage on. And that actually is not, to be fair, that's not something that, is, that we only suggest that was very strong already in the work on issue evolution by uh, Carmines and Stimson uh, that was developed in the United States. So you can think of the dominant players that they usually in Europe have come up on left-right issues. Think about, you know, um, more intervention in the economy versus less intervention in the economy, to just put it very simply. So what dominant parties try to do is to make sure that competition is about that. Because if it's about a, a different issue, it might split their coalition, so their members, their constituents. So that's the other thing that they try to do, issue avoidance only focus on the issues that are beneficial for them, avoid all kinds of other issues that might be potentially explosive for them. And I think the last thing what they do, and that comes back to the type of more Downsian idea, is they're like ice cream vendors on that, on that beach that try to sit in the middle of the beach in order to you know, minimize the, the distance for everyone to come to their ice cream uh, store, that's also what political parties try to do. So they try to be kind of centrist, a bit left off center, a bit right off center, be kind of Volksparteien, you would say in Germany, people's parties, that they can really seem like they are uh, the core of, they're representing as many people as possible, they're the core of, of kind of competition. And they try to then therefore seem very beneficial to as many, pa- uh, as many voters as possible. So that would be kind of, uh, kind of moving slightly to the middle of left of center or right of center. So those are the three, three things. So mobilizing competence, avoiding issues, and trying to, you know, trying to be kind of catch all, if you will, trying to be as centrist as possible that dominant parties are trying to do in order to, to circumvent that, that, that entrepreneurs could enter the market or innovation could happen on the market. What I think is really interesting is that 
one strategy that's very prominent in the literature, but also especially in the public discourse, is this idea of issue accommodation. So for example, if you think of one big disruptor, radical right parties and the issue of immigration, then one strategy that is discussed a lot uh, in the literature, but also in, in the public discourse, is really appropriating the issue of immigration. So becoming more anti-immigrant as a mainstream party, becoming more immigration skeptic, regulating immigration more to then um, draw away support from the radical right. And this is something that doesn't really feature so much in your, um, in your strategy scenarios, and which I think is interesting because I think we know of a lot of cases that show that exactly that strategy isn't working for me. No, so, so I, I think that's a great question. So I think in the way that we think about it, is that actually, if that was beneficial, it's kind of by accident. Because if you think about what issue accommodation does, so issue accommodation has also been quite prominent as in, in, uh, in work by an American political scientist, Bonnie McGeed, so that dominant parties, and she talks about niche parties, so it's slightly different than what we do, but uh, she talks about that mainstream parties could have possible arsenal of responses. So issue accommodation would be, would be one. Of course, that is a possible arsenal, but we're talking more about what is the successful strategy for dominant parties. And we would probably say that that issue accommodation is not so successful. And try, I'll try to explain why that is. So if you go on the, on the issue accommodation route, you have to be very clear that this does not create dissent within your own party, which it often does. Right? You see, you see that in you know, take uh, a good example of this, the Conservative Party in, in Britain, it had to really expel certain party members on the Brexit position, so on their EU position. So that's a high cost. It can, it, it's risky. You know, Boris Johnson is known to take that risk, but it could have really backfired. Secondly, I think why it's a, why it's a, why it's a, a very risky strategy is also because what you do is you start playing the game of the challenger. So a challenger basically is a party that is not that is not dominant in the in, in the system, often can be a new party or at least not a very resourced party. So if you start talking about their main issue, for example, immigration or the EU or some other issue, you actually give them a lot of credence. Journalists pick up on that, competition becomes about that issue, which again is really jeopardizing the dominance of the parties. Because remember, parties really want to stick to left-right competition because that's where they have their advantage on. So it can, it can risk dissent. It can make the issue of the challenger more important than your own issue, which is what you don't want. And thirdly, I think what's really important, what we do in the book, when you look at the last part of the book is about transformation. So what does this do to voters and what does this do to government, government uh, um, uh, coalitions? So two things I can say about that. So if you start talking about immigration <clears throat> as a dominant right, right party, for example, what you do is actually, so what we know is that it's very difficult to... to um, to, if someone is very anti-immigrant, a voter, to make them all of a sudden pro-immigrant, right? That, 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 that's quite difficult to do, to really have a 100% shift or 180 degree shift. But what you can do is, is by talking about immigration, is make the immigration issue more salient, more important in the head of a voter than, let's say, right, left-right issues. When you start doing that, we show that that favors challengers over over uh, mainstream. So the way you can think about it on the, on the kind of market again, is that people often go for the real thing rather than the copycat, right? Uh, 
So, so, so that really then also changes the electoral consideration. And then I think lastly, why it's also a dangerous thing potentially to do is that you are not alone as a mainstream. In most European countries, you have to, you have to govern in coalition. So for example, <clears throat> if you are, if you uh, happen to become anti-immigrant, uh, then it might be very difficult to get into a coalition with a party again. It sometimes works. Think about the current Austrian coalition where you have the ÖVP, so the, the People's Party and the Greens. But they basically had to say, okay, immigration goes to the People's Party and the Greens are, are just going to you know, talk to the environment. I'm just making a very kind of charged, cartoon-esque, uh, uh, but it really was kind of a division of labor type of coalition. And that often is not the way coalitions are formed. So if you start doing that and start catering and pandering towards an immig immigration stance, for example, as a right or, or a left mainstream party, you, 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 you open yourself up to a lot of risk. Internally, you open yourself to, and risk to your relationships with other potential coalition partners, and you actually might get an electoral result, which is worse than if you would have just stick to your kind of guns, to your own, to your own issues. Mm -hmm. But then the alternative is to ignore an issue or avoid an issue. How much can parties do that? It's somehow difficult to imagine you have a salient issue, everyone's talking about it, and a mainstream party does not respond to this demand. Yeah, so that's the very tricky thing. I think we outlined it in the end of the book as well. So I'm not sure that the challenger is the one that always makes that salient because you see that 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 you have had anti-immigration sentiment. Let's take the country I know best, I'm Dutch. You, you've had political entrepreneurs mobilizing anti-immigration stances early on. The breakthrough was in 2001. And we argue, I can, I can talk later, you know, when we talk about innovation, why that was successful. But one of the reasons was also an external event, 9-11, right? So 9-11 really uh, made it more salonfähig or more acceptable to be critical about uh, um, Muslim immigrants or, or people coming from dominant Muslim countries that were that are Dutch but that have an immigration background to talk badly about them if you will right that 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 was more done in in, in, in the media and so on so I, I think in that moment in time it becomes difficult right it becomes difficult because it becomes so salient However, the question is, we lack basically the counterfactual, right? So what happened in the Netherlands is that the Social Democrats changed their issue position on, on immigration. They became more anti-immigration to detrimental effect to that, to that, to that party. So it, it, we really lack the counterfactual. What would have happened for a left-wing party, right, for a left-wing, if it would have found another angle of, which is more left-right or more social, if you will, which fits more naturally to a left-wing party, to talk about that, 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 that particular issue or to become basically very progressive. What we saw in the Netherlands is that that progressive stance is popular, but it's just moved from the, from the Social Democrats to the Greens, right? So, so in that way, it is, it is indeed difficult, but you still face a, a strategic choice. And in my kind of humble opinion, the, 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 the choice made at that moment in time with the Social Democratic Party for the, for the reasons I previously outlined was, I think, not the optimal strategy that they could have taken. It's interesting because the, the, the public narrative and also the narrative in especially the mainstream left very often is exactly the opposite. No, they think they have lost voters to especially the radical right, because they weren't quick enough to become more anti-immigrant or because they're still too progressive. And this is one major reason um, that they're now losing voters, seems to me really the dominant narrative there. Yeah, exactly. And I think that it, 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 so I think our market analogy can kind of help 
Like, I don't think that, and that, and that is basically, if I'm very critical, I think political parties in Europe are still in a Lipset rock counting world. So they think that there are voters that naturally are tied to them and therefore they should get them quote unquote back, right? They could, they should go and try to get these. So voters have become increasingly volatile as we show in the book, right? So what's really happened since the, since the more structural conditions changed. So if you are, if you are a worker, you're not necessarily voting for, for the left centrist party or the social democratic party is that votes are up for grasp, but Parties keep, also when I advise them, they keep thinking, oh, these are my voters and I need to go after them. And what I, what I then often say is, well, actually, there's a different coalition of voters that you could be tapping into. And why are you not doing that? Why are you, I, for example, as a, as a social democratic party, why are you leaving that to the Greens, right? So, so this interesting element is, is that when you want to talk about, I don't think many firms talk about, oh, we want to have that customer back now. They're thinking about, okay, we've lost some customers. What could we do to innovate our project in order to get... But mostly it is, where are our growth potentials? So which other customers could we get, right? So, and this is the kind of way that political parties often don't, don't or at least not always, talk about. And I think that's quite prevalent among social democratic parties because they really have had this, this you know, that they've been really, you know, affected very much by this shift, and I think in the Netherlands, for example, coming back to that country, you really see the, the Social Democratic Party and the Christian Democratic Party having real issues dealing with that, right? So the Greens and the Liberal Party have just kind of been more agnostic about this and, and started to mobilize on different groups. And, 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 I, and I think that's a really important uh, thing to keep in mind. We've now, of course, focused a lot on the on the decline of mainstream parties. That's also very visible. But I think one major argument that you're making in the book is that actually, maybe surprisingly, mainstream parties have still remained very dominant in European multi-party competition. Yes. So this is what I said at the beginning, that we thought that we were ask, actually asking the wrong question at the beginning, right? So we focused our work very much on challenger parties. And we wanted, and, and I think it's partly comes from, a, from something that Sara and I, I mean, not to say, you know, that we were visionaries or anything, but Sara and I have seen for a very long time that while media was focusing very much on populist parties, you also saw other developments. And I think that, you know, you've done a lot on that, uh, Tariq, as well, is that Greens were mobilizing that other parties who have not been in government were mobilizing very strongly. And also that we've seen this in the past, that, that, that this focus on populist parties and especially populist right is not really helping us very much in trying to understand party competition. So we moved from, like, let's say, using a, an adjective like populist to more challenger parties, a type of party, right? And then secondly, what we, uh, what we also uh, observed is that there are, there are populist parties that were in government and those are not, and they sometimes operate differently, right? So some, sometimes the rough edges go off in the way that we describe what happens when you govern, and, and that's what we wanted to adjust for as well. But then the, 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 the other element, what we realized when we started to plot basically the vote shares for, in the last century, right? So to, uh, 1920 to, uh, to now, is that dominant parties have been actually remarkably resilient. We've seen challenges to... Uh, their dominance before, right? I mean, we can only, th you know, think of the do very dark period in uh, in European history, which was the, the fascist period. Uh, we can think also of uh, the 1970s and 80s with uh, extreme left and green parties. And we can then see in the in the kind of late 1990s and early uh, uh, thousands with, with, with populist, but especially populist right parties. 
And, and oftentimes what you see is that it's a swing, right? So that they come back eventually. I think one element where we are maybe a little bit less... So we definitely see a lot of room for, for dominant parties and their dominance, but what maybe has changed a little bit in the, since the 1980s, right? So in the, maybe the last uh, uh, challenge, which is, which is especially populist parties, is that voters have become more critical consumers, right? So we see more, um, uh, yeah, what we call volatility. So changes between your vote choice in one election vis-a-vis -vis another. And that's really where, 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 where there's more possibilities for, um, for uh, challenges to break through because some of the structural conditions, so electoral systems have mostly not changed, but another structural conditions that makes a party system an oligopoly is that voters are tied, you know, consumers are tied to certain products and certain, certain producers. And in, on the marketplace, that has changed, of course, with all these structural changes, you know, declining religiosity, uh, declining the working class, uh, development of, uh, of, of much more complex class structures that therefore, you know, you see, you see a, a less kind of clear commitment. So definitely we see a lot of dominance on dominant parties, but dominant parties now really have to do those other strategies that I talked about, right? So issue avoidance, competence mobilization, and some form of like a catch-all strategy in order to, to, to weed off the, 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 the challenge uh, by challenger parties because some of their structural advantage to the ties that they had, natural ties they had with voters, are weaker now. So this is really a, a, you know, a very in interesting and important part, I think, of, uh, of, of European uh, party competition that we're going to see the coming, the coming 20, 50 years to see how that develops further. What I also thought was interesting in this regard is um, that usually you would associate mainstream parties with being old parties, parties that have been around for a long time, while challenger party, in a way, to me, suggested th those are the new parties. But that's not necessarily the case, right? So you have challenger parties that have been around for a very long time and have just remained challenger parties, while you have new parties that probably in the beginning then are challenger parties, but then very quickly become these type of a dominant government dominating parties like, I don't know, La, Re La République en Marche, for example. Exactly. So I think I, I also have to think a little bit about uh, how Macmillan, so former uh, British prime minister, that always says events, dear boy, events, right? So that there are certain elements, certain things that happen in, in external events that happen that then sometimes can challenger parties are able to, to, let's say, cannibalize on that. So the same, I mean, I'm taking as an example where you have a shift a technological shift on the market for products. So we, you know, Apple has been very good in moving into that, where Microsoft has been less good, or Dell has been less good in doing that. The same you see with political parties. So for, I'm just going to take an example from Greece. So Syriza, which has become a, the dominant party now in Greece on the left, had been a party for quite a long time. So it was a, a kind of a conglomerate of communist, Maoist, kind of left parties in, uh, extreme left parties in Greece. And it was able to capitalize on the Eurozone crisis. And basically, when it, it's, its critical stance towards PASOK, so the, the, the social democratic party there, allowed it to, to, to basically use that crisis, if you will, and become the dominant party. But that took quite some time, right? That party is not necessarily new, right? République en marche, as you describe, um, was, uh, you know, 
developed by, you know, kind of an insider, right? I mean, I mean, uh, Macron had been a minister, of course, but it was a new party that, you know, runs for an election and then becomes the president party, wins the legislative elections in France and becomes a dominant party almost overnight, right? So, so in that way, you see very different trajectories. So you have new parties that become very successful, um, but then you also have parties that have, lie, have, have been lying dormant. What is important to note there, though, is that if, you, if, if people have an interest in the book and they'll look at the online appendix, there are so many challenger parties, right? And most of them are really unsuccessful. So it's the same that you have startup firms, if you will, right, in the, in the, in the back of a garage. The majority of them are not successful. What we, what we often read about is survivor bias, those that, you know, do well, and then you hear about them. But the majority of challenger parties uh, uh, are not successful. And I think one last thing I want to say about that, about the newness, So what's really important to remember that one of the prototype dominant parties right now, right, social democratic parties, were the challengers in, in, the, in, in, the, in the previous century, right? They, they were one of the mo kind of most successful challengers to date, right? They mobilized on a socialist future, on a better, on inclusion of the working class, on really changing, overalling the system, right, that liberals and conservatives had developed. So franchise for, for workers, etc. And then at a certain point, of course, they then become the challenger parties. And now they act almost like the challenger parties, you know, per excellence, right? But they really, it's important to remember that, 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 that challenger parties is not a new phenomenon. It doesn't always require new parties, and the majority of challenger parties are unsuccessful. Mm. So you already mentioned now the, the, that there are so many different challenger parties around that you probably never heard of or only know in your own country when you go to the voting booth and then you see all these parties that you are surprised to, to find even as a political scientist. But so what, what possibilities, what strategies do these challenger parties have to potentially become successful? So one thing we always we, we say and that I've already outlined that the backdrop, of course, is also that the barriers of entry lower a bit, right? So you could have, for example, an electoral change, which you've seen in Italy. It doesn't happen very frequently. But let's say if the UK would move from first past the post to a time of proportional representation system that would change the entire uh, uh, playing field. And that's what you've, for example, seen in European parliamentary elections where, where UKIP or, or, or the Brexit party did extremely well. So that, those are some structural conditions. But I think what is, what is important and what the book really focuses on are what are the strategies that these parties can employ, right? And we already outlined the strategies for dominant parties and what are now the, the, the kind of innovation strategies for, for, for challenger parties. So we really think that, and we, and we show that in the book, that there's two types of innovation strategies that, parties, that challenger parties can employ. And I can also go into some qualitative examples. The book is a combination of quantitative and qualitative uh, evidence as to say as to why this dual strategy, so doing both at the same time, seems to be the most successful. So the first is that you have to do a policy innovation. And that's what we call issue entrepreneurship. So that's basically mobilizing a wedge issue. So an issue that splits the dominant party. Remember that I said dominant parties want to keep those issues off the agenda because they can split. Challenger parties, almost the reverse case, right? They want to keep those on, on the agenda. And in the book, we don't call them wedge issues, which would be uh, an, a term that's kind of coined from the United States uh, uh, literature. But we call them, to stick close to our market analogy, high appropriability issues. So what, do high, what does high appropriability means? mean? So coming back to, like, let's say... Um, Let's, let me just give an example on the, on, on, on the market. Let's come back to, uh, to Elon Musk and Tesla, right? So 
Tesla comes up with this electronic uh, 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 car, uh, which is very advanced at that moment in time, and also which looks good, right? So it's, it's a full-on product. And then Elon Musk first decides that he's not going to patent in this very kind of Silicon Valley way of, uh, uh, of, uh, of uh, surfer dudes. Uh, I'm not going to patent this innovation. Of course, as, as competitors start copying this innovation, he patents that. So patenting is the way that you can appropriate, in which you can, let's say, stamp an innovation on the economic market. So political parties can't patent, right? That's, they don't have that, uh, that possibility. Everybody can talk about immigration. Everybody can talk about European integration. But what you can do is to, uh, that an issue allows for more appropriation when you have a very unified stance on it, but the competition, so these dominant parties, are very split. Why? Because if the issue splits the dominant side or a dominant party, let's say coming back to immigration and social democrats, right, or the EU and, uh, and social democrats, um, that basically it makes it very difficult for your competitor, so for a dominant party, to respond to your innovation. And that gives you a, fir a first mover advantage, which is similar to that patenting, right? So that basically you can reap the benefits about that issue because dominant parties just cannot respond, right? But then after a while, and you talked about issue accommodation already, after a while there might be an incentive, if it's successful or not, it's a different story, right? But there might be an incentive for the dominant party to start talking about that issue if that issue becomes really important, especially when there's an external event, for example, like a Eurozone crisis, like, a, like, a, like, a, like a, uh, an influx of migration, uh, like the current corona uh, crisis, which might also you know, uh, uh, create a, a crisis about EU response and, and criticism about EU response. So then there is a window of opportunity for these challenger parties. They move in through this policy innovation, through this issue entrepreneurship. But then after a while, dominant parties might be tempted to respond. And that's what's called in the kind of more market an imitation, right? So you want to imitate the product. For example, the patent runs out and then dominant parties start imitating. So what you then, what you then do is, is, is um, respond to that imitation by strong anti-establishment rhetoric. So it's not just a policy that you employ, but you also have a rhetorical innovation that you add to this. And that's basically highlighting to voters, stick to the real deal, guys. These guys are responding, but it was really our position, right? So, and, and what we show in some qualitative evidence, especially from Austria, is that this dual, so product innovation and uh, rhetorical innovation at the same time seems to, be, seems to be the most successful formula. I'll give you an example from the qualitative case in, uh, in, uh, in Austria. So you had Team Stronach, which is a, a big uh, uh, a billionaire, Austrian billionaire, that started also in the Eurozone crisis. You know, anti-EU sentiment was already mobilized by the Freedom Party, at that moment in time, actually a dominant party, had been in government, but also by the, the BZÖ, I'd never know what the English translation is, but a split-off of the, of, the, of the previous Freedom Party by, uh, by, that was led by, well, previously led by Haider. So th this anti-EU anti sentiment was already mobilized in the Austrian uh, uh, discourse. So then Stronach, basically, a bit Trumpian, if you will, starts talking about, I can fund my own campaign. He becomes very anti-establishment of the elites. They're selling it out in the Eurozone. They're, you know, making, giving all this money to Greece, if that's true or not. But anyway, it doesn't matter. He's talking about that. But he's not really providing a policy innovation. Because as I said, this anti-EU sentiment was already in the Austrian system by other entrepreneurs. And that basically runs its course.
right? So at a certain point, he can't, he has a little bit of an increase because of some criticism, but then if, you know, the crisis kind of dies down, that's it. So we, what we really show is that only the policy innovation, if you start doing that, but you don't protect yourself from imitation, you can die out. And if you only do the, the rhetorical innovation, but you don't add a policy innovation that also dies out. So what we kind of highlight and also show with some of the qualitative and quantitative data is that this dual strategy seems to be what's, what's, what's the most uh, beneficial and the most, the most uh, uh, successful for, for challenger parties to employ. Yeah, one party I was thinking about is in Germany, there's a party that's called the Party for Health Research. Okay. And in a way, you could think, well, now in the current context conditions, this party, of course, should see a rising increase in support in the next month because everyone agrees uh, that health research is super important. But we don't think that it's actually going to happen, right? No. No, so I think that probably if... So what you see is that especially um, when you have... Uh, an issue like let's say health when it's really also about the competence right so it's also about I think that it you know like the CDU just talking about health probably would make people already feel more secure because it's very difficult to credibly say that you have a, a better health policy when you've never been in government you know like that people probably don't think that that's going to be very successful right so I think it's very difficult to to frame health like like a high probability kind of wedge issue that's it's quite difficult to do. And then I think also that it's easier to criticize on an issue on which the competence advantage is not so clear, right? So for example, if you think about the EU, you could say, well, you know, the EU is like a competence issue that's very difficult to exploit for, for, exploit, sorry, for dominant parties in the national system. So let's take... Uh, uh, an example of Conte right now, right? So the uh, the 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 uh, the Italian Prime Minister, by the way, he's he's independent, so he's neither of the far five star movement or or the Partito Democratico, so the Social Democrats. But for those two parties to um, to um, to credibly say, well, we're anti EU, and at the same time they're negotiating at the EU level for some for emergency help and for recovery plan. That's very difficult, right? Because the competence issue, you ha you're on two tables at the same time. Then for a party like Salvini, Salvini's Lega or Meloni's uh, Fratelli, so that's the, the kind of new, seems to be up and, you know, more up and coming uh, radical right populist party is, is moving up in the polls while Lega is going down in Italy right now they can much more credibly be anti-EU, right? Because they can exploit that weakness. With health policy in Germany, I, I think it will be very difficult to do that, right? So it's, it's also the kind of what are the circumstances and where can you really play out and credibly explain to voters why anti-establishment is a wise decision, right? Or why, why, why criticism of the, of the, the government it seems, quote-unquote, wise. I'm not saying it's not a value judgment, but, but where, it sees, where, where it seems more credible. Uh, and I think that would be much more the case in exploiting anti-EU sentiment in Italy right now than health policy in Germany right now. Mm. So we, we have these two, uh, th these two things that are necessary together in order to cause the creative destruction that the challenger parties need. In the beginning of the conversation, you mentioned 
the contrasting position of European party competition a little bit. So the idea that parties are mostly a product of changing cleavages, so changing socioeconomically determined conflict structures within societies. While you now emphasize the strategic potential that parties have themselves. So that would, my question would be, how much potential do parties really have themselves? Can they create cleavages? Can we, t so uh, maybe it's a little bit of a, but can we maybe talk about the word dimensions rather than a cleavage? Because I think that we are a bit, a bit, we have to be a bit careful about the conceptual stretching of a cleavage. So the cleavage I, I, I see personally, but the reading of certain academics might be different, is it's very much associated with Lipset and Rockan, and it's very much associated to really big social, um, 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 social divisions, right? And for example, if you talk about kind of an EU, um, an EU dimension or going anti, oh, I don't think that within Italy there is this huge social division when it comes to the EU at the moment, right? So many people think that 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 the EU is not treating Italy properly, right? So it's not a social division within Italy necessarily. So I find it that a little bit more difficult to talk about a cleavage, but a dimension might be or positioning dimension is 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 is, is maybe easier. But that already maybe gives away a little bit of my, you know, on which side of the debate I am. Uh, uh, so so coming back to your to your to your question. So to what extent I, I if I can rephrase the question. So I think this has to do with the extent to which we think that public opinion is endogenous to what parties do, so it is dependent on what parties do, or it is some something that's out there that is more exogenous, so that is more given, and that parties respond to. So if you have a very strict reading, and none of the readings, but maybe it's just for to kind of conceptual clarity, it's good to kind of you know really push them against each other, is that if you really would need, you know, with a gun to your head, say which which kind of set of theorizing things of, of, of public opinion is more exogenous or which things of public opinion is more endogenous, then I think that, that the kind of more structural, Lipset, Rokhanian, cleavage uh, uh, um, uh, theorizing really sees that parties are manifestations, are vehicles of social divisions. So if you think about it in that way, it's much more that then the causality comes when you have a structural, structural societal divide that then gets picked up by parties that gets entered into the political party uh, system. And then there might be some change of position because it enters into the party system. That's the kind of sociological, structural way of looking at it. I think the more strategic way of thinking about it, and that's where Sarah and I, I'm speaking for Sarah now, but I, uh, uh, position ourselves is that well, there are these type of divisions, but especially when, when, when voters become more critical, uh, critical consumers, where these links are less strong, which we're talking about today, and parties operate like entrepreneurs, right, uh, and, and dominant players, there's much more room for parties shaping public opinion. So probably the, the and that's the idea that, that parties can make voters think about different things. Note that the way we think about this is a bit different than sometimes people from the structural side uh, 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 make it sound. So from the structural th side, they, I think, sometimes think that public opinion, that we suggest that public opinion is not structured. So that's far from the case. Of course, we all know that certain, that if you're a poor person, there might be a different structure to your issue positions than when you're a rich person. However, what we know also in, 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 in from kind of, let's say the Brexit example is, is is a is a good example uh, of that, or poor people in in Brazil 
supporting Bolsonaro, that people are not necessarily voting for their interests. And why are they doing that? Because parties give them a package of issue positions. So what they can do is they can make you think about other issues as more important vis-a-vis your class structure. And I think that's a real opportunity. And for me, actually, that's what structural, um, the structural position really fails to see, that people can sometimes vote against their interests, hold positions that are incompatible with their interests, and also really have issue positions that don't seem to be kind of, you know, consistent belief systems. And that is, and that's kind of converse, you know, converse and, and, and kind of more, more an American uh, uh, perspective, I guess, or strategic perspective. And that's because entrepreneurs can, can make you think like, oh, okay, you're poor. But remember, the EU is really the most important thing right now to think about. And that works. We know that there are empirical examples of that working. So it doesn't work 100%. I'm not saying that, that you know, that, that because otherwise every, every entrepreneur would always win an election. Of course, that's not going to, going to be 100% the case. But, but parties have way more structuring power. And then it comes maybe my ontological position in as well a little bit, is that if you don't understand that, you don't understand persuasion, you don't understand the degree to which people really can vote against their class interests. And, and that really, I think, is, is, is something really important to remember. So for me, it's so central to the way I think about politics and the way I think about how certain parties can, quote-unquote, get away with certain things, right? Having very neoliberal positions that don't help the poor and get away with that in an election just because they're talking about the second dimension. They're talking about uh, uh, values. They're talking about anti-abortion in the United States. They're talking about immigrants. They're talking about the EU in the, in the, in, in the, in the kind of European context. And I think if you don't understand the highly endogenous nature of public opinion, you really, I think, lose out theoretical rigor and, and critical rigor in, in only to understand what's happening in party systems in Europe today. You've already mentioned that, that from your perspective, this entrepreneurial exercise in mobilizing public opinion in a certain way that's beneficial to a challenger has become easier in a way because voters have become de-aligned from traditional parties, certain types of organizations, institutions that tied voters to parties, unions, for example, have disappeared in, to a certain degree. I was also wondering if a changing media environment also helps political entrepreneurs in that regard. So definitely. So, so, so we talk about that a little bit at the end of the book and it comes back a little bit, but you know, it's difficult when you develop a new theory to kind of go up with everything. But I, I think I'm increasingly, and Sarah and I are, uh, uh, unfortunately, it looks like uh, due to the current situation, we can't be uh, presenting a paper at a conference that we wanted to, but to look more at the organizational structure of parties, right? So the, what happens within a party. And that's a work from, uh, from a very famous political scientist, Panabianco, for example, in, who wrote, I think it was in the 70s, uh, wrote about this uh, very much. And also K- uh, Kirchheimer, when he started to talk about kind of catch-all, uh, catch-all parties. Uh, and uh, and uh, and that's been a little bit. I've worked on party organization myself, but it's it's a little bit more tricky to to do. Why am I mentioning that? Because uh, if you think about challengers, especially when they are new, we talked about that they're not always new, but when they are new, it's very difficult for them to have the resources to sustain an effort of running a campaign, right? So 
in, especially in previous times. So if we think about, let's say, we should be a bit careful to not develop this kind of rosy picture of dominant parties in the 1970s. But nonetheless, what we do know is that there were money more gatekeepers. So the traditional media, for example, if you didn't have good connections in Italy, let's say with the Corriere della Serra or Repubblica, depending on if you are on the right or the left, you, you wouldn't get your message through, right? But uh, a, pa a party like, uh, like, uh, like Savini's Lega or uh, Fratelli uh, Meloni, which is the, the leader of uh, Fratelli d'Italia, which is also a, a, a radical uh, right party, they have been able to utilize social media very strongly. Because social media is not a, a leveler, nothing le really levels, right? You, you still have resource differences. But if you're savvy on social media and you invest heavily in social media, You know, journalists right now, because of the news cycles being so quick, they often then react to that. They also want to often get horse race frames, right? So conflictual frames, one side, the other side. So then oftentimes what you see on, at least in, in, in Italian media, you see the same in, in, in the Netherlands, uh, uh, the kind of countries I know best at the moment, is that you see Salvini always being on, on, on TV, the same as, as uh, when it was now a discussion about lifting Uh, a, a lockdown post-COVID in the Netherlands that Thierry Boudet was again on, uh, on, on Dutch media. So that's the radical right political entrepreneur in the Netherlands. And I think because they are savvy in utilizing uh, social media, uh, uh, Thierry Boudet has YouTube channels and, and they reach out to a lot of young people that are on social media and they're able to really set an agenda for journalists that are often also reactive just because of the speed of the news cycle. So we haven't studied that in depth, in depth and there's been other... Uh, people who have studied that more, uh, more, more in depth, but there seems to be uh, uh, a relationship between that, and that I think just shows you that, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't want to criticize, but, but we really have to be careful with these structural approaches, because these structural approaches really, really just um, uh, leave out these important strategies that are there for political parties. And I think as researchers, we, be, we, we should be studying those strategies much more in depth. The same as business administration or industrial organization does that for firms. I think that's where the new kind of frontier is. So how are parties or organizations uh, structured? How are they using social media? How are they uh, connecting to their members when these, as you, as you mentioned, traditional, uh, um, uh, you know, social Uh, social Democrats relying on trade unions and so on, right, have kind of disappeared. How are these new links created? And what do we understand for that? I think one small footnote I want to take to that. So yes, that's true. But we have to be very careful to then say, oh, challenger parties, you know, or, or the Salvinis of this world or the Melonis of this world are going to take it all. It also shows that these links are much more volatile than they are before. So you can also, if you make a misstep, you can lose, Right. Also, kind of polls go down, and, 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 and you've seen that with Salvini, you've seen that in the Netherlands with several, you know, uh, uh, different versions of a similar radical right sentiment or anti-immigration sentiment, that if then you, the innovation runs its course or you make a mistake, you also lose voters very, very, very quickly again, because you didn't have these old school links where, where you know, what is really over trade union, where you could explain these difficult trade-offs. So it is a chance to... To move in, 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 in with innovations, but it's almost the same as kind of a the venture capitalist that 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 then get an app, but then Snapchat can you know get out of fashion very quickly again, right? So I I think we I think that what we just see is a huge volatility in in the electoral and political market, 
which which we now have to understand better. And that's kind of where the, where, where the book also ends, right? In the sense of like, these are questions that we should be trying to explain and should be working on as political scientists or economists, political economists. The last question I have that very much links to this is, if we look at the West European party systems at the moment, we of course see this massive fragmentation, uh, Dutchification as some people have called it, even in countries where we didn't see that for a long time. Um, so this is the snapshot picture right now, which of course very much then speaks for the importance of all these niche challenger parties. Is there a scenario where we go back to a world where we have, let's say, two or three dominant parties that in parliaments and that's it? So if I would know really the answer to that question, I'll be, you know, working at JP Morgan shorting against a certain whatever, you know, I mean, I, so, so no, I wouldn't, but anyway, uh, um, um, that's a difficult, that, that's a difficult answer because we, we don't, you know, things move so quickly as we saw, for example, also, you know, in a, in a Eurozone crisis, in a pandemic now, and, you know, it, it's, it's difficult to say, but I think there's three possible scenarios. So one is what you discussed, which is fragmentation. So that's basically having a lot of parties in the party system, which makes it difficult to form coalitions, which makes parties very slow, which, you know, which, which has, which creates a lot of, um, 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 you know, splits and divisions, right? So that's the kind of Dutch model, as you say, and that's, and that's also because there's high, low electoral uh, hurdles in, in, the, in the Dutch system. A second scenario, I think, which is really not the most likely, but we'll see what happens in this if we're going to enter a, a kind of deep economic crisis, is one of replacement. And that's basically where you see a challenger party replacing the dominant party. And the kind of recent example that we've seen there has been the Greek example. I mentioned it already, where the Social Democratic Party, PASOK, uh, was in government, had to cut... Uh, was criticized a lot. I'm making you know Greek uh, history now very quick, but um, um, it was was really criticized by Syriza that mobilized on this anti memorandum, anti uh, uh, um, uh, ESM or well before ESM, uh, anti Troika kind of position in in Greece, and basically effectively replaced Syriza on the left. Right, so it went into government, etc. So that's the second scenario. However, I think that that doesn't really happen that often, and an interesting reading on that would be. Uh, um, there needs to be a huge kind of competence shock for that to, to happen, right? So a, a party that's in government that really, you know, is, a corru is, is ingrained in, in corruption like PASOK and then also has to kind of start cutting as a left-wing party. And that, that, is, uh, that is some work that, that Norm Lupu has done also in Latin America, that that's not the most likely outcome. It does happen, but not as frequently. I think another possibility uh, is that you would see one of reinvention. So one where dominant parties can reinvent And, and, and reinvent themselves as challenges come out and, and they use the challenger in order to innovate again. And I think one of the best examples of that, I don't know if it will be successful for the long term electorally, but has been the Social Democratic Party in Spain, PSOE on the Sanchez. And I think Sanchez really understood that Podemos in their more left wing line, in their, uh, in their more pro-immigration, pro-feminism line had, had kind of uh, hit a nerve with the left in Spain. And it moved much further away from a third way uh, kind of uh, left-wing stance back to a, more, to a more progressive left stance. And then also went ultimately into coalition, so co-opted, if you will, Podemos into the system by going into a, a, into a coalition with them and was able then to, to run Spain on a, on, on a more left-wing Uh, 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 stance. So that is what I what I what I what I could see. 
However, I think it is, we have to be careful to extrapolate from the Spanish uh, example because the Spanish electoral system is not so beneficial for, 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 ch for, for challenges. We've seen two very successful ones, uh, or three actually, uh, Ciudadanos, so uh, a liberal, well, a right-wing uh, challenger, uh, then Vox, an extreme right challenger, and then uh, Podemos, an extreme left challenger. But the, the, there are quite some disproportionalities, especially on the, in, 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 in the, the way the Senate is structured, so the upper chamber is structured in Spain that doesn't allow for challenges to become really huge in Spanish politics. So in that way, I think that, that really the, you might you, 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 we highlight a little bit on that. There could be an interaction with how, how much of a level playing field do you have, right? So how open is the electoral system for challengers? But then we used to also say that about France. And I mean, France has been an example of, you know, the last 2017 presidential elections, two challengers being in the, in the, in the, in, in the second round. So it will really really depend on how this uh, how this happens actually when it comes to think about it we don't mention it like that but of course the replacement scenario also fits for the republicans so for the previous coalists and uh, and uh, um, um, right so so you see some of these different scenarios playing out in different systems but i wouldn't write off the the dominant parties just yet Catherine, we're already coming to an end. There's a final question I ask all the participants because we're, of course, recording this um, out of the, the lockdown in our respective homes. Um, and the final question is for a reading recommendation. So one recommendation for an academic piece and one for a non-academic publication. Yeah, so I, I think that, that, you know, this is a time also to really think, right? And I said that already before, is that, yeah, we can be nitty-gritty down in the data. I don't know how many people follow all pandemic data, but it is also, I think, really important to think about larger pictures. And one kind of European political scientist who uh, who's very close to my heart, I mean, I went to the EY and, and was his guest for quite some time. Unfortunately, he died at a very young age. I think at the age of 60 was Peter Mayer, uh, uh, the, who was developed together with Dick Castle, so the idea of cartel parties. But he wrote a, a book, which he didn't fully, com fully complete, actually. There, there's there's uh, some parts, but it has been published anyway, which is called Ruling the Void. Uh, and that really talks a little bit about the kind of... So to be fair, some of the, the empirics that he cites, Sarah and I show, are not, are not necessarily the case. But, but nonetheless, this kind of idea about how the public becomes further removed and how managerial politics plays in and that... And that, and that that maybe some dominant parties, by focusing on competence mobilization so much as Sar and I would say, uh, have lost some of this connection to to uh, to uh, to voters, and that challenger parties are then bringing back, if you will, into the electoral system. Then ruling the void is is, is really very interesting, and it's much more of a normative uh, book. Uh, as I said, some of the uh, he 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 you know builds on empirics, but he makes a kind of more charged argument. But I think it's an important argument, and we should really take it uh, seriously. So that's the kind of uh, academic recommendation that I have. So on the non-academic recommendation, although it's not entirely true because it's kind of a, a, a non-fiction book, but uh, it's, it's, the, it's a book called Behave uh, by Robert Salpowski. I, I don't know if I, I, if I pronounced that correctly, but it's basically someone who used to work in Silicon Valley for a very long time and talks basically about the role of, of, uh, of AI and human nature. And the, the book is called Behave, the Biology of Humans at Our, worst and, at our Best and Our Worst. And I think it's a, it's, a, it's a book that has accompanied me in the lockdown. It's not a 
kind of uplifting read, but uh, but it's kind of an important read, and it also maybe links to the question that you uh, that you asked about how social media, how uh, you know some of these kind of technological developments are playing into also uh, party politics and how it how it how it how it makes us think and the way that we do or behave in a certain way, and uh, and and I think that this book is is super interesting uh, in that regard. Great. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you so much. This was really a fascinating conversation for me. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast.